0: <laughs> but this was really 1981 the
1: to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary, The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. My guest today is Stephen Blush author of a fascinating new nonfiction book called when rock met disco i was lucky enough to get an advanced copy to read prior to this interview and i cannot recommend it highly enough i learned so much the book covers a unique era in music history and goes in depth on rockers that crossed over into disco like rod stewart blondie the stones and many more Stephen has written several other books, including American Hair Metal and New York Rock, The Rise of the Velvet Underground and the Fall of CBGB. Welcome to the show, Steve.
0: Uh, so glad to be here, Stacy.
1: Yeah, thanks for being on. Well, I read your book and I guess what the um, first question is, what was your initial inspiration to write it?
0: Well, you know, I've been working in music for a long, long time. And I realized that my life, my life really is rock and disco. I grew up, grew up in New York. Um, uh, I should say, I should probably just take it back to the top. Like <clears throat> when I'm like a three teen, I was, there was a show called American Top 40 with Casey Kasem.
1: Oh yeah. And,
0: and I would just memorize those 40 songs and I would just, You know, I just really was just so fascinated by music at the time. And uh, this was uh, just about the time where disco was starting, although it didn't really have a name yet. But um, in New York City, there was a radio station that was the first one playing early disco. And what I mean by that is not really the Bee Gees. Uh, That's about 1977. That's you know, and and that's a, a like just a cultural sensation, which was a little bit too much for me even at the time, which explains my, I think my underground music tastes in general. I just was reflexively, I don't I don't think I was really a fan of that stuff, when it when it first started happening, when, when that started happening. But uh, a few years earlier, there was a, a earlier incarnation of disco, probably best known for the van mccoy song do the hustle oh yeah and um so there was this whole sound that was based on orchestral music and it was uh i would best describe it as barry white um, barry white would play with like a 30-piece orchestra and uh and it was very um soulful uh dance music and there was many other artists that i was discovering from listening to this station that was called Disco 102 at the time. And uh, so all these groups you may not know, but like South Soul Orchestra and the Richie family and and Crown Heights Affair and songs like Rock the Boat and Disco Inferno. And um, so I was really fascinated by this. So this was the first underground music I realized that I got into so i really had like this memory of the music but then i also had this other side of me which was um growing up in the suburbs while i was listening to this all my friends were into rock and roll so the first concert i ever saw was led zeppelin at madison square garden
1: wow lucky you
0: yeah so uh and i saw like you know some and i was very young and I, i this just all you know so rock and disco was just this constant thing and you know in the suburbs they did like disco because it was gay and it was black and it was i didn't even know what gay was at the time i don't even think but um you know i just knew that there was this different energy that was going on and it was a city energy and um so uh When I came to and then, you know, flash forward, being a journalist and then being a club DJ in New York, I I always kind of mixed the music. So it it never really um, I I never really saw that separation that everybody else saw. So um, when Rock Met Disco was was really my story.
1: Very interesting. Yeah, I I mean, since you lived it, I'm wondering if your research going back to those eras, uh, did it uncover anything unexpected for you?
0: Yeah, well, um, I think it's all about the place and time, you know, everything in a book, anything in history, it's all place and time. And um, I didn't really, I understood what disco was, which was a, a flash. A uh, flashing, flashingness—I don't know what that word is—but um, making music You're the author. Hey? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Making. Yeah, I can't come up with the word, but the the music uh, was flashy. It was well, and everybody was well dressed, and mm-hmm. you know, there was this whole thing going on. And I, I didn't really understand the. I think what I learned most was the context of how it happened, and what that is is that uh go back a few years earlier um it was the 60s uh which kind of predates me but um it was the hippies and it was very um uh not well dressed mm-hmm. sloppy and very druggy and 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 <clears throat> it wasn't really based on having fun right so mm-hmm. uh, so I think I, under, I, I came to understand the context of how disco happened. And then I also in the research was reminded of like what a blowback there was to this idea of flashy, sexy music, which was kind of the counterpoint to most early 70s rock and roll. Right, you know, which were all the kind of guys in uh, buckskin jackets and blue jeans, and right. So yeah, just, yeah,
1: exactly. So it's yeah, like a very comes to mind.
0: <laughs> right, right. So, so yeah. So that there's all of that, but but I liked them both, and I didn't really understand what beef what the beef was. So, um, but it's a fascinating and. So that's what drove me to write this book is like like why was there such a, like a culture war over this
1: exactly i mean i that in reading your book too, I was reminded how I feel like the disco sucks movement was a little odd because a lot of musicians piled on against other musicians I mean you know some you might expect like the aforementioned Ted Nugent and Boston. But there right. were um, other artists who I was a little surprised, uh, like Frank Zappa, since he took on the PMRC for censorship just a few years later. Um, were there any but, other artists whose intolerance surprised you?
0: Well, I mean, I, I think that there was like the whole current of FM radio. Mm-hmm. Like, so So, I, I think it was like a an, invent, an invented war. It was like for ratings, it seems oh, like to be. Yeah. Like, you know let's, let's, you know, let's create this conflict, which doesn't really exist. And let me tell you, the disco people didn't know about this conflict or care about it. You know, they were just dancing. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? They were just having a good time. You know, they, they really weren't interested or or, you know, or neither did they like it. Right. I mean, it's just like it it just kind of played into a lot of the things of the 70s, which were very hypocritical, because on one hand, you had these incredible social movements of, you know, feminism and uh, gay rights uh, starting. But on the other hand, there was this incredible intolerance. Uh and especially from like college, P- people went to college, and people were like, supposedly, you know, open minded. So it was it was a, it was not as cool. A time. You know, the 70s were not that cool. You know, so 70s, I found was a time where I was just trying to navigate myself. And, you know, find, you know, find um, find great music and it was all over the place but um there was a lot of um condemnation and judgment that surrounded it all which was really kind of kind of wrong because um you know the enemy of rock really was not disco the enemy of hard rock was soft rock Mm -hmm. Which was this thing that was kind of invented, um, not invented, but it was kind of like the old music had never really gone away um, from like the '50s and '60s. So they're the people who are running the radio and and the magazines. They're kind of older, and they kind of come from this kind of uh, post Sinatra age, maybe um where they're um you know rock and roll is is kind of like elvis presley which who who i love but elvis presley is a very kind of dressed dressed that dressed up kind of version of rock and roll you know it was a very um uh it it, it, it was part of the system you know there was a time in this a short time in the sixties where the bands were trying to break away from the system, meaning this kind of uh corporate top down music business, but it didn't last very long. so you had in the seventies you would hear a Led Zeppelin song and then you would hear like in you know the Osmonds or or Elton John or. Not taking away from Elton John, but you know, just the lightest of the light. You know, there was this guy Neil Sedaka.
1: Uh, true, and good. I do remember the '70s did have a sort of a '50s nostalgia resurgence with Happy Days and American Graffiti and the Donna Nash show. So they exactly
0: was- right, right? That, yeah. that wasn't really cool.
1: No, yeah. definitely not. <laughs> no. So, um, so you're
0: yeah. so this giant search for, you know, finding music, but, you know, when you hear like these, you know, you hear Mandy by Barry Manilow after Stairway to Heaven. Ugh.
1: And, <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's what like, they were,
0: that's what they were backlash.
1: doing. Yeah. yeah
0: right. <laughs> and that's what they were doing. So I, I never really understood what, what the problem with disco was other than it was like based in some racial uh, or some sort of, uh, deep-rooted, um, negativity, because.
1: Yeah, it must it, have you know, been, what? I mean, you brought up a good point in your book that there was debatably, you know, debatably much worse music at the time, like the Osmonds or Captain and Tennille, but there wasn't the same backlash from the rock right. and metal community. So probably because the Osmonds and Captain and Tennille weren't gay, so to speak, I'm using air quotes oh. with my hands that nobody yes. can see. <laughs> So that right yeah. and it was
0: it was it was more com- it was probably more comfortable.
1: Yeah. Huh. Very odd. Yeah. Well, yeah. you mentioned a few rock to disco crossover songs in your book like um Blondie's Heart of Glass and The Stones Miss You, but not Led Zeppelin's Carouselambra. So, what was your criteria for choosing which songs or artists to spotlight in the book?
0: Um, well, you know, the song you just re- you mentioned is, is probably probably could have been mentioned. Um, uh, but I was looking for what, what was good. What was really interesting to me about rock ver- when rock met disco is that rock people who, okay. Disco groups were basically, either session musicians or these jazz ensembles that were kind of making, kind of implored to make dance music. Like if you wanna have a record contract here, you know, (laughs) make a dance song. So, um, but what happened was these really solid rock bands uh, got onto the disco floor. You know, they'd go to Studio Fifty Four,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. You know,
0: and and, um, there was really nothing wrong with it. So what they what they were able to do was bring rock tones and professional playing to a form. So that's why "Miss You" or um, "I Was Made for Loving You" by by Kiss, which is kind of the bane of their existence, (laughs) are still better songs. Than, you know, some of the songs on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, right? Because they're, they're really kind of, they're really solid musicians. I mean, there's this idea that, like, you know, when you, there's a difference between a fan and a musician. And a fan, you know, has their tastes and they're usually quite sharp and judgmental, but the musicians are just playing music it's just music right so so you know Carmine Apache of uh, Vanilla Fudge later played with Ozzy Osbourne he's the he's the drummer on um for Rod Stewart right so yes. you know and uh you know uh the the drum you know the guys who put Anton Fig is the drummer on I was made for loving you and and uh you know, so I and the, it was the same engineers. Like if you if you read the book, you talk to the guys who are like the engineers and the producers. It's just music to them. They went to Studio Fifty Four, and then they went back to the studio and finished their rock record because it's just music. And that's that's the key to this whole thing. It's like this was just music. Why was there like like such a <laughs> you know, I use the word culture war, because, you know, how, how did that happen? You know, and it was so intense at a time. I remember, you know, reading these interviews with like, I don't know, there was a band called the Pat Travers Band that was really big back then.
1: Oh, yeah, I remember them.
0: Right. And that was like kind of blues rock. And they would do these interviews, they'd be like, we could take on a disco act and play with one hand behind our backs. (laughs)
1: You
0: know, this idea that like their music was somehow better, you know, and Mm -hmm. um, it really wasn't, it really wasn't, you know. I mean, and, you know, I made a comment about like, you know, not really being with it, kind of falling off the bandwagon by the time of of, uh, Saturday Night Fever, um, but that music is so well executed. You know that is like really well played music. The Bee Gees were not a disco group. They were they go back to the '60s. You know they they were like a the Austra- they were like Australia's Beatles. You know they were like a whole they they had a whole history. So that this was not. This was not, um, you know, some amateur hour kind of thing. Um, uh, and my thing with with moving on from uh, the 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 time of Saturday Night Fever is more again that place and time thing where punk rock began, and I kind of related to that. But what I didn't relate to punk rock at all was the anti disco thing.
1: Mm, mm-hmm.
0: Like I just didn't dig it. Like all my friends were like, you know, hated disco. And I just I I I was not with it. You know, I felt like New York is like a sophisticated place where where we all like different kinds of music. Um, you know, I mean, and then there was all of a sudden there was all, all of a sudden so many things going on within this kind of punk rock movement, you know, from from uh ramones to talking heads to blondie right so it's like this whole it's not really a a musical construct it's like a it's like a cultural umbrella where you're um uh you're part of a culture you know, right you're you're part of a scene so it, it goes you know it, it's it was a lot deeper than that um Blondie, of course, is a ve- is is kind of the outlier to this whole thing, because, um, you know, their first two records are on this label called Private Stock, and um, that's when they come out of CBGBs. And I had actually saw them at CBGBs, and I, you know, I, you know, I related to that punk thing. But then, then they signed a major label deal with Chrysalis And they, their eyes were open to the industry. So on one hand, you were still getting parallel lines and all that, that kind of era of the, if you know what I'm talking about, that this era of them.
1: Yeah, which you is- talk a lot about Blondie in your book, which is really interesting because they have so many genres that they cross. Um, I never really thought of them as disco artists, but you're right, they have a lot of disco songs. Um, how would yeah. you categorize them if you can yeah, so,
0: so so they were um they were open to what was going they they had their ears open, right? They were like a new they were a very New York group in that way, you know. So they would go to the club. They would go to all sorts of clubs and hear all sorts of music. So, um, you know, everyone talks about "Rapture." Uh huh. Rapture, super important song. Um, you know, kind of crosses a, It's the crossover of disco and the beginning of hip hop, but right before that, they work with Giorgio Moroder, who is the producer of Donna Summer, and they they do uh, the song "Call Me." And, um, which is, um, uh, soundtrack to American gigolo, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And, um, it's like a really, it's, it's really a classic disco song because it's, it's very, it's kind of a dirty subject and, um, you know, it's, it's like about cruising basically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm.
1: Indeed. Well, yeah, he was a gigolo.
0: Yeah. So she's, um. So you know that's where they're coming from. So that's that's when rock met disco too, right? So yes. so what rock met disco is you know on the cover we have um, Mick Jagger, Deborah Harry, Rod Stewart, and Freddie Mercury.
1: Yeah, that's a brilliant <laughs> cover design, by the way.
0: Thank you. Yeah, we spent a lot of time on that. Um, the publisher did a tremendous job. I'm I'm really happy with with everything they did. Um, and it, it really conveys what the culture was. So, and, you know, I don't have Kiss on there. I don't have the Grateful Dead on there. The the Disco Dead, if you remember that era. <laughs>
1: no, actually, I don't remember that one. I have to look yeah, that so, one up. Because, yeah, so that, but that's I, a fun thing about your book, too, is that as I was reading it, I'm like going to YouTube and Spotify. And so it's a really it's a full on multimedia experience.
0: Awesome. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I mean, Grateful Dead fans don't want to hear this at all. But <laughs> they but they, especially Mickey Hart, the drummer, loved disco. They made a record called Shakedown Street. Um they they, they have they have two albums. Uh um the Terrapin Station has has a couple of disco songs. And Shakedown Street is a complete disco song, and like the fans like pretend that stuff never happened. They like write it out of history. It's like verboten, Mm. but they they absolutely were playing disco, and um, there was nothing wrong with playing disco because again, you're just stretching your musical boundaries. It's not like it's not like the the Rolling Stones turned into a disco group or kissed turned into a disco group they just stretched their boundaries on certain songs mm-hmm. and that's what a musician does a musician is oh, hears new ideas hears a new sound and puts their own twist on it that's that's what that's what music is so um it's it's kind of powerful I think I think that uh, and to be honest with you, when people think about disco, I think they think more about Miss You and I Was Made for Loving You and uh, Do You Think I'm Sexy? You know, uh, those kind of songs, because they're so well executed, not, not just because they're iconic uh, and iconographic because you hurt them so much, but also because, you know what, they're pretty good songs. You know, and, um, you know, you listen to KISS interviews today. I mean, since they're, you know, at their last legs right now, they're talking a lot. And they still have to answer for I Was Made For Loving You.
1: Wow. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I uh, directed a music documentary about my dad's group, The Ventures, and we have a little section in there about The Ventures disco era. And I I interviewed Tim Polcat from the Polcats and he's laughing about the disco album. And we have a little, you know, we don't talk about the disco era, so it's still kind of funny to a lot of people, but yeah, everyone experimented with it. Um, There's a 1980 quote in your book from Daryl Hall saying you can't rock and roll a disco song, but um, there weren't as many disco to rock crossovers, if I remember correctly, but didn't, um, Jeff Skunk Baxter play guitar on a Donna Summer song.
0: Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, these is so so again, it was that thing I had said about the musicians. I mean, it's not about the music. The, the musicians are fine to first of all, Bad Girls um it's kind of like a rock song. It's kind of like a pre-Michael Jackson kind of, it's like a little before Eat It or something.
1: Yes, Ed Van Halen played on that.
0: Right, exactly. So so there you go. So that's 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 again the musicians playing the part here. Um there were like a lot of The 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 thing about disco to rock, there were a lot of uh um there were a lot of attempts at it. Like there would be a version of uh like you know covers of like T-Rex or Led Zeppelin or
1: Oh yeah, Blonde on. on Blonde did um oh gosh, didn't they do a whole lot of love?
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, so
1: that was I thought that was a lot of fun.
0: Right. So so it's not so it wasn't unheard of, but it was it was a little um that was a little more artificial.
1: Right. It was more beautiful. novel in the novelty territory. Correct,
0: correct, yeah. It was really more like, but the idea of like um Paul Stanley or Mick Jagger, you know, the famous, this famous pictures of like Mick, Mick and Bianca Jagger with Andy Warhol at Studio 54. <laughs> right. And that's like this iconic stuff.
1: Exactly.
0: And, that, and they're getting it from like listening to the DJs. So, um, but, you know, the blowback to that was, was, was almost obscene, you know, and, um, but, These bands are all still standing and these songs remain iconic. And I think that's the magic of this book really is like just kind of revisiting um, like how music was forever changed by this like two, three year period of uh, cultural push and pull.
1: Yeah, I mean, your book is extremely unique. I don't think I've seen an, anything else like it. Um, and your book, um, When Rock Met Disco, or when it just it doesn't cover just the music, it goes into the dangers that fans faced. <laughs> and I'm not talking about getting beaten up by rock ruffians or cocaine overdoses, but disco finger and laser eyes. I mean, I had no ideas. How did you find out about these maladies?
0: Well, you know, incredible <laughs> research, of course, but um, you know. So anyway, so in the seventies, there was this thing about lasers. Um, there was laserium.
1: Yeah, the Pink Floyd experience. I remember right. those.
0: Right. So everyone. So lasers were like the cutting edge. I remember when Blue Oyster Cult went on tour, the ads would be like their million-dollar laser show. Ah. Oh. But the laser. But the lasers had to be were found to be incredibly dangerous and uh they were ba- they were basically banned hmm. I mean I I, don't, I have no idea what, what oyster Cult did with all their lasers but you basically had to just throw them out because because it was they really were dangerous now that was a danger disco finger uh disco leg those kind of things I, I questioned how many people had <laughs> maladies of it but I read articles with doctors who <laughs> who talked about it. So I thought that those were just fun subjects to bring within the book. And, yeah, uh...
1: they really are. <laughs> um, so in your opinion, what is the closest thing that we have to disco music right now?
0: Well, I think disco is, is everywhere in that um, the combination of rock and disco happened, which is the mixing of rock tones to dance music so like you know anything that came out of uh w- what you would call edm now or uh-huh. before that what uh happened in manchester england you know these were essentially rock bands doing disco you know new order you know these they were um <clears throat> that that was that was the the blueprint for modern dance music, Mo- modern dance music doesn't sound like Barry White. It doesn't sound like the Bee Gees. But it does sound like, the, uh, you know, the Stone Roses or sounds like um, uh, all these combinations that I'm talking about, you know, like the idea that you or, or miss you, you know, that that's that you would hear a dance song at a club today, that would be like a sped up version of that.
1: Yeah, Jane Jensen has a great cover of "Miss You." It's old now, I oh, guess, yeah. but
0: yeah, yeah. I, I know that one. Yeah, so so there you go. It's it's like thinking, it's thinking rock but acting dance floor. Mm, mm-hmm. So that's the magic that that that's, and that's what and that's the conclusion of this book. Which is, you know, it it first started as new wave, um, as they called it, uh, but it really turned into um, uh, all EDM and and many of these new styles because because it has that content of rock attitude, which was very different. That that's the difference because disco didn't have rock attitude. Right. So the rock the rockers some of the rockers had disco attitude. But but so so now is the fusion and that's exciting. Music is supposed to change and grow and this is and it was because of those seminal records that this is how we got there.
1: Well, I'm going to close with my favorite question. What is your own personal rock and roll nightmare
0: well i could tell you as a journalist um the the biggest nightmare is meeting your favorite rock star oh because you will always be disappointed it's it's just it's just really hard i i i can't even like um say say well I'll, I'll, like i just remember being, like i had i did incredible i did a couple of incredible interviews with robert plant Oh, did you? But then I met him with Jimmy Page. And Jimmy Page, it was just awful. It was just, you know, it was like the guy who you thought was the edgiest, you know, like most, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of like the most intense uh, character in the rise of, of hard rock and heavy metal. Was just kind of. Can I call was their
1: energy really different together? Or yes, it's-
0: the energy, the energy was completely different together. And I was gonna, I was gonna point that out. And now you see why there's not a Led Zeppelin reunion.
1: Oh wow, huh? Because
0: yeah. you could see that, like, to to Robert Plant was not having fun with him. You know, because they had that brief reunion around in the early '90s.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I just remember, like, I would hang out with. You know Robert Plant on a rock in Central Park and burn burn a fat one, <laughs> and then you you'd see him like like almost recoil when he's with um with with Jimmy Page. So, um, but in general, you know, you would do these interviews and you would you would ask ask people like an edgy question and you know you just realize how corporate they are and how like you know in. You know, just following the manager's advice and you know, don't rock the boat. And you know, it's funny I said rock the boat. I, or originally I talked about the song Rock the Boat.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but these but these people like it's so conservative. This is such a conservative world. The the nightmare is that rock and roll is a very conservative world. That's not a- not not the fans, not not the fans, but the the industry and 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 the and the artists as they become more more successful, they're guarding it. There's a lot. There's this great article that's out right now, you know, by Tim Sommer, uh, about Ticketron, and um, you know how all the fans are up in arms that it costs them like you know three weeks salary to go to a concert. Yeah. But um the bands don't care because who's gonna complain? The the accountant, the the manager? Uh you know what I'm saying? Like who who's who's gonna complain? Well it's
1: incredibly difficult for music artists to make a living now on on music. They have to make it on touring, right?
0: Right. But but it's like the people who could change the system, like you know, uh, there was this thing with uh with the Ticketron thing where um Robert Smith of The Cure try, tried to do something about his ticket prices he didn't even know. But he just had to stop. Or more famous cases, uh, Pearl Jam, mm-hmm.
1: uh,
0: you know, 10 plus years ago, tried to take on Ticketron and just had to give up. Yeah, because it was just that was a war you were not going to win.
1: Insane. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, there's a lot of rock and roll nightmares out there, but your book is a dream. So let's tell people where they can get the book and where uh, our listeners can find and follow you online.
0: Well, luckily, but Backbeat actually has real distribution and so the book is kind of available. (laughs) Uh, I was a bit amazed to walk into like Barnes and Noble and see stacks of it, you know, things like that. So, uh, you know, so the record. So when And I always tell people just, just get the book wherever it's easier for you. You know, if it's, if it's still buying it from, you know, online, do that, but it's available everywhere. Um, 10 years ago, I would have told you to go to StephenBlush.com, which is still there and updated. And I'm sure you could check me out there, but it's more like uh, Instagram, the Stephen Blush or, um, Stephen Blush on Facebook pretty easy to find. So um but that that will set, set you up on everything I'm doing. And um I just also lastly want to say that this book is part of a series. I am uh we just did When Rock Met Disco. Um I am now completing a book called When Rock Met Reggae, ah. which is really an amazing story. It might even be a better story than Disco because disco has it's kind of um uh, the, just because the 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 reggae story is so intense you know
1: Led Zeppelin yeah. has a reggae song
0: you sure do Yep.
1: <laughs> all right I well I look forward ready. to reading that one too
0: exactly so that's all part of like a three or four part series so um that's what you're going to be hearing of me in the next uh year or three
1: awesome I'll have you back on thanks steve
0: yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: All right, take care. Take
0: care. Thanks, Bye. Stacey.
1: Bye. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R-O-C-K-N. R O L L nightmares. dot com. Our official theme song is "She's Out for Blood" by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening.